everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast, the podcast that brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Handley from Flatlining.net, and with me, as he has been, is President and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies and economist Ron Howergan. Ron, how are you, sir? I'm good. I hope you are as well. I am, uh, and thanks again for joining us this week, and thanks for your input last week as we had our conversation with Dr. Hurley. I, I think that was uh, educational for a lot of people, and uh, as of today, it's been our most listened-to program, and, and I'm very proud about that. Today, we're going to be talking about a uh, rather topical issue, and that would be the debt ceiling. You know, we're, we talked about this a little bit earlier this year when the Fed announced, or uh, rather the Treasury Department announced we would be hitting the debt ceiling coming towards June. And as we predicted, nothing has been done about it until now. And we're now less than a month away from the month of June. And so there seems to be some last minute uh, uh, things happening. And and the Biden administration, I I know, is meeting with uh, Republicans in Congress to talk about this. And we're going to talk about it today here on the Flatlining Podcast, and especially uh, what could happen uh, to Medicare in particular, because that's important to uh, our physicians and Medicaid and uh, healthcare in general. So first, Ron, I'll ask you to put your economist hat on and, and ask why it's important that we have a debt ceiling to begin with. Well, um, first a little bit of history on sort of where the debt ceiling came from. Um, this sort of goes way back. Um, the government was first allowed to actually borrow money was back in World War I. Um, and they created the opportunity for the government to borrow money um, without sort of too many hoops and, and hurdles to jump through so that they could fund itself. Um, and then in 1939 was when this concept of the debt ceiling came about. And that was basically a process put in place to say, well, the government shouldn't be able to borrow unlimited amounts of money. So the, the Congress would set a ceiling. And then as the government approached that ceiling, the idea was, and this happened multiple times, that the, you know, the government would determine when they were going to hit that debt ceiling. Um, the Congress would approve an increase in the debt ceiling or the credit card limit, if you were. Um, that approval would be signed by the president and we'd have a new debt ceiling. Um, so that's sort of the background of where it came from. So the idea is that it's the ability for Congress to keep the government from just borrowing unlimited amount of monies. It falls well within what we think of as checks and balances in our government. And, um, and since 1960, um, that limit has been raised 78 times. Mm-hmm. So this is not an unusual occurrence. Um, the only thing about it, unusual about it now is we seem to be flirting with the idea of maybe actually defaulting. And why is that important that the government can't spend, you know, unlimited amounts of money? Because I think part of the argument here, at least from some conservatives, is that you're effectively allowing that to happen by raising it every time. So why why is one that not the case? And two, why does it matter that we keep checks on the government spending that way? Well, and there's a valid point that if you just keep raising the debt ceiling, um, all you're doing is basically saying that we're going to keep borrowing, keep borrowing, keep borrowing. Um, But there's a lot of parts of this process that have failed by the time we get to the debt ceiling piece. You know, first and foremost, from a fundamental perspective, we are supposed to, by October 1st of every year, have a federal budget for the next year. The last time the federal government actually passed a budget um, that was signed by a president was 1998. So we've had 24 years of not actually having a federal budget, rather than having just these continuing resolutions. Um, 
So we're failing at the idea of actually creating a budget. And I think it's a legitimate thing to say we're failing at the idea of controlling our spending if all we do is keep increasing the debt ceiling 78 times since 1960. Mm -hmm. You know, so, um, you know, those are, I think, valid points. Some people remember back several years ago, I think during the recession in 2008 is when this occurred, that the the credit rating for the U.S. got downgraded. How does that play a role in the debt ceiling and and how much money the U.S. keeps spending? Well, the U.S., like everybody else, has to pay interest on their debt. And your credit rating, you know, when we think about it as individuals, we think about our FICO score. Your FICO score will impact the rate you can get on a home loan or a credit card mm-hmm. or a car loan. Well, a country's sort of credit rating, if you will, impacts the interest it has to pay on bonds that float. So with $31 trillion of debt, our credit rating goes down and the interest rate goes up. That means we're going to be paying an awful lot more on interest service right. on that debt. Um, and that's why a company's, you know, or a country's credit rating is important. So we're reaching the point where the Treasury Secretary is warning that we're going to hit the limit. Of course, it's a it's hard to pinpoint a date because spending and, and income is, is rather sporadic when it comes to the federal government. So it's but we're thinking sometime in June, um, I would say from what I've read this past day, it's it's probably going to be early June. So what happens then? We'll say, we'll take the nuclear option. Nothing gets done in Congress. They don't raise the debt limit. They don't eliminate the debt limit. What happens when we hit uh, the debt ceiling? What what goes on? So there's really, um, and, and we've never done this, okay, as a government. We've never actually hit the hard stop of not being able to borrow any money. Um, and there's really three potential scenarios. Um, one scenario is that Secretary Yellen and, and others decides to pay the um, bondholders, if you will, pay the investors, the people who own our debt. Um, but to do that, they're going to have to not pay other things. Right. That could be things like Medicare payments to providers. That could be things like federal salaries. Um, so, you know, they, they'd sort of pick and say, well, we have to we have to pay off these bondholders, which means we're not going to be able to pay other things, the military, et cetera. Mm-hmm. The second scenario is they do the reverse and they say, well, we're going to default on these bonds. You know, they come due, we owe the money, we borrowed it, we're just not going to pay it so that we can continue to pay out Medicare payments, continue to send out Social Security checks to the elderly, continuing to pay federal employees, that kind of thing. The challenge on those two scenarios is they can't do both. Right. Um, They clearly can't do both, so they could do sort of one or the other. The third scenario, and I'm not a constitutional attorney, I'm not an attorney at all, and there's a lot of debate over this, is this idea has come up that President Biden could issue under the 14th Amendment and could just override Congress and borrow money. That part of that amendment hasn't ever really been challenged in the courts, so nobody really knows what would happen in that scenario. But any of those three scenarios will have incredible ramifications and shockwaves throughout our economy, the stock market, the bond market, and the rest of the world, because anything that happens here has a ripple effect everywhere else. Mm-hmm. So none of those three are good. No. Uh, so just to recap, you got the three options that they pay the bonds, but don't pay other services like government salaries or Medicare. You've mm-hmm. got the option where they default on the bonds and that's where they, they, they do pay uh, Medicare and, and other benefits. And then the third option being the, in, 
which is up for debate, I suppose, is the whether or not the Biden administration can just overrule all this and, and, and do this on their own. Um, I want to focus on, uh, I, I guess that's option number two, which is defaulting on their bonds and, and paying Medicare. Will Medicare, do you think, if that's the option they go with, will Medicare continue to be paid at the same rate or are they going to start mid-year adjusting the fee schedule for Medicare so that they can cut costs somewhere? Is that something they can even do? Uh, for a I don't think, yeah, I don't think there's any legal way without congressional approval to just mid-year cut the reimbursement okay. rate. Now, what they can do, um, and, and have in other situations done in the past, they can slow down payments. You know, mm-hmm. They could wait a week or two before they issue payments. Um, they could wait longer than that. Um, but I don't think people are going to get sort of paid 50 cents on the dollar or anything like that on the, on the Medicare side. Um, same thing with, with people's individual Social Security checks. They couldn't mm-hmm. just change how much they have to pay for Social Security. Now they could delay sending out the checks. Yeah. So in that case, it would be going back more to the first option, which would be, you know, paying the bonds, but not paying Social Security and Medicare. How how late do you think they would delay Medicare payments to physicians? Um, I think that a lot of that depends on it. All of this is revolving around a game of political brinksmanship. I think that depends on whether or not they thought they were close to a deal. So let's say we're coming up to, you know, um, Secretary Yellen saying, hey, I'm out of of money on Friday. Right. Um, And Congress, it's late Thursday, says we've got the earmarks of the deal. We just don't have it passed yet. We'll be able to pass it through the House and the Senate sometime next week. Uh, It'll get signed by the president, you know, a week from Friday. If it's a week delay, they could easily do that. You know, they could they could not send checks out for a week and um, and handle that. So I think you could see something like that. Now, if if they come up to that drop dead date and there isn't even close to a deal um, and the president does want to invoke the 14th Amendment, boy, then it's a different thing. I, then I don't think you see Yellen um, say, well, I'm going to mess around with this for a week or two weeks because we're, we're, we're not even in that stage yet. Then I think she's got to make a, a decision about, you know, do I crash the stock market or do I have, you know, people not get their health care or their social security checks right? Um, and federal employees not get paid? I mean, those are talk about lesser of two evils. Yeah. If we if we go that route, um, what should physicians, you know, what, what would we say to our clients uh, if that were to happen where we can expect that Medicare is not going to get paid, say, for weeks or even months? You know, what what advice would we give to our clients uh, if that happens? Yeah, I think the the advice we give to our clients is it's it's like anything else where you're going to see a revenue um, hiccup, um, similar to what happened, if you will, when you know COVID hit. We, you know, a lot of these physicians couldn't see patients in their office and mm-hmm. had, a, had a revenue shortfall. You know, look at what ability you have in your own group, whether it's a line of credit or other purposes to to sort of get through that that downturn. Um, you know, I, I can't imagine a scenario where this country would just totally default on those Medicare payments. In other words, they will eventually be paid. Right. It's a little bit like, you know, in the times when the government is shut down and they furlough federal employees mm-hmm. or the critical employees don't get paid, but they'll eventually get caught up on their on their paychecks. So I, I don't think those internal payments are at risk of never happening. They just could be disrupted. Now, that may be a different issue with the external risk of defaulting on some bonds. Um, mm-hmm. That's a, that's sort of a whole different scenario and a little bit easier 
to if you're yelling to to just default on. Um, but right now, I know one of the things she's very concerned about with that is the timing of that. Um, I mean, we just had the second largest bank failure in our history, yep. and happened over a weekend, and, and you know it had to be purchased for some other dollar by another bank. Uh, now is not a great time to be sending shockwaves through the bond market, through the stock market, et cetera, right. because you could see a lot of other banks then fail from that scenario as well. And, and, and just to that point, I've, I've read that a number of other large uh, regional banks have been put on notice by uh, uh, the, the regulatory commissions because of the possibility that they could go under two. Um, yeah. Go that, ahead. We, we, you know, if you think about the banks, we've had we've had a few die. Yeah, uh, there are a whole bunch are on the critical list. Yeah, you know that aren't under the woods yet. So it, that's why I mean, it's dicey right now to mess around with that kind of stuff. In uh, the commercial side of insurance, if a payer stops paying claims, um, you know, you could take Bright Health for example, because they're they're basically not around anymore except for their one plan out in California. Um, they stop paying claims that you could say that's a breach of contract. And unless they start paying again, the remedy for breach is termination. We've talked about that before. Is there an instance where providers could stop seeing Medicare patients because they know they're not going to get paid anytime soon? Um, to some degree. Yes. Now there are some state and federal laws around patient abandonment. Right. So for example, um, if you're, you know, caring for a patient that's inpatient in a hospital, you can't just not show up the next day to provide their care. Right. You know, you, you really can't abandon a patient during the middle of chemotherapy, things like that. But um, for the vast majority of things, if you're a, you know, uh, an internal medicine physician caring for somebody and it's time for their next annual appointment, um, you can say, I'm, I'm not, not going to see you yeah. um, because I'm not sure if I'm going to get paid. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, there could be that turn off of care. Um, in, in large sections of the healthcare delivery system. In the, um, for the patients that have something like a Medicare Advantage plan where they're not using their red, white, and blue card when they go to the doctor, will those plans from United Healthcare or WellCare or whoever it is, will those still pay out uh, in the event that the government is not going to be paying Medicare claims? I, I, I believe they will. Okay. I mean, you know, that those companies, most of those companies are very well-funded and can afford to, to pay some claims for a while, especially if they you know, fully believe that eventually the government caught up. So I, I don't think that's a concern. I'll tell you, but the bigger concern about claims not getting paid sure. um, revolves around uh, the large self-funded employer groups, um, because these employer groups um, are funding those claims out of a certain bank account. And if you think about a scenario where the stock market crashes um, or the economy takes a huge hit, you could have some of those employer groups get into financial trouble and they stop funding those claims. That to me is a bigger concern than let's say the Medicare Advantage plans. Mm -hmm. the, the, one of the problems with this is it's never happened. We don't know exactly what would happen. Um, we just know it's bad. Yeah. Um, and so there's a lot of this where we're sort of guessing uh, what would, you know, what would Yellen do? How would the markets react? Mm -hmm. Um, what would happen with banks? Well, you know, we, we know that it's really nasty, um, which is why we hope it doesn't happen. Yeah. Uh, but we're not sure exactly what, it, what would happen. And if we were a general economy podcast, we would be talking about a whole lot more of those things. We're, yeah. you know, we're focusing on the, the Medicare Medicaid issue just because right. it's, it's relevant to our clients at Fulcrum and, and, and it's relevant to the, our other physician listeners as well. 
I want to switch to that real quick, and that's there, there has been one proposal passed uh, by the GOP in the House. It's dead on arrival in the Senate. Um, I, I think that on the one hand, though, it shows that Republicans are willing to deal in some instance. Basically, they said they would raise the debt ceiling by $1.5 trillion or until um, sometime in March of next year, whichever yeah. came first. Uh, and in exchange, they had some uh, spending cuts tied into it, uh, one of which was um, adding work requirements to certain entitlement programs, including Medicaid. Uh, and one analysis from the Kaiser Family Foundation said that they, uh, if you add work requirements to Medicare or to Medicaid, rather, you're basically negating the Medicaid expansion that's been taking place since the passing of the Affordable Care Act. And so I'm, I'm curious, how much money will that actually save the, the federal government by adding work requirements to something like Medicaid? Well, uh, the the plan that got passed, unlike adding work requirements to Medicaid, there was another part of it that limit the budget increase to one percent right, right, year yep, over year, which yep. would also mean since inflation is much higher, that there would be have to be discretionary spending cuts, etc. None of this is anywhere close to enough money to solve our appetite for borrowing money. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you know, I'm not going to say that spending cuts aren't an important thing, and that you got to start somewhere, um, but none of it are enough to sort of fix the problem. They're all to a large degree political theater. Um, But sure, adding work requirements to Medicaid, there's estimates all over the board of how much it will save, and it's real money, Um, don't get me wrong. Um, But it's not, you know, it's it's to some degree the the old saying, it's putting Band-Aids on bullet wounds. Right, and and I do know that part of the problem with putting work requirements on Medicaid or or SNAP or or food stamps or stuff Mm -hmm. like that is that for a lot of these people that are on those programs, it's because they can't work, in particular with, right. with Medicaid. Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'll give you a perfect example. I mean, my, um, my son has autism, um, and now that he's over 18, he qualifies for Medicaid. Mm-hmm. Um, well, he's significantly hampered with autism. He, he can't work. Right. Um, so that's, a, a, you know, one of many examples of he's not on Medicaid because he's lazy. He's mm-hmm. not, you know, he can, he qualifies for Medicaid because he has autism. Right. Um, and there's a bunch of other examples mm-hmm. of those scenarios. So that's one of the issues with it. Now, again, I, you know, not saying that we shouldn't look at the expense side of the equation. I absolutely think we should, but it's not going to fix the problem. Right. It, it, you know, it's it's funny here in, in uh, I joke with people here in Michigan, we had a, a budget surplus the past few years. And there was a law in the books here that uh, it, once it hit a certain amount, the income tax rate got automatically cut. And I do remember the governor was trying to figure out a way to spend that money so that uh, they would fix the problem of the income tax rate having to be cut. And unfortunately for her, she didn't. Uh, figure it out in time. So that's that's coming our way. And I don't think that that's a problem we've got to worry about with the federal budget anytime soon, given how much debt we're in. Um, let me ask you this, because in all, this will be putting your economist hat back on. There are a lot of people that are adverse to debt in general in their personal um, budgets, in their household budgets. Why is that not necessarily the same when we're talking about a governmental institution? Well, I, I think most economists would argue that whether it's in a personal budget or in a, in a governmental budget, that debt in and of itself is not necessarily evil and responsible amounts of debt are actually good. So let's take a personal budget scenario. You know, if, if you were completely adverse to any debt whatsoever, then you probably would never get to the point where you could buy a house. 
Mm-hmm. Um, right. You'd have a difficult time buying a car. Those are debt. Now they're debts tied to specific assets, um, but still there's debt. Now, um, you know, being, a, a, let's say, a young person only making $50,000 a year, having $100,000 worth of credit card debt, probably isn't a great thing to do. Right. Okay. So the same thing with governments. Governments having reasonable amounts of debt help those economies grow um, and help them to, to stay vibrant. And so, and you've heard me say this before, my big thing, whether it's personal or on a governmental level, and on a governmental level, it's measured by debt to GDP ratio. How much mm-hmm. debt do you have to your gross domestic product? On a personal level, it would be how much debt do you have compared to your income? Um, that, to me, is the big question. Um, I don't think the U.S. government ever can or should get completely debt-free. But should we have a debt-to-GDP ratio of 130%? I don't think we should be there either. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the real challenge. Real quickly, and, and this will be, I think, my last question on, on this topic is uh, thinking politically. You know, you've got a very, we've talked about this before, right after the midterms, we have a very thin majority in the House. Uh, I say we, I mean, uh, Republicans do. And I, I would say we probably tend to lean a little bit more that way, although as things have been going on, maybe not. But uh, Speaker McCarthy has a very thin majority in the House, and we saw how hard it was to even get him elected as Speaker uh, several months ago. And there's a real possibility that you could have uh, several defectors from the Republicans not go along with a deal. Um, and as a result, we would hit the debt ceiling. What do you think happens politically to those members of Congress? How hard how well, harder will it be for them to win re-election in 2024? Well, here's the here's the and you've you've hit on my concern. I think if you took and I'll just pick a handful of people. If you took McCarthy, McCarthy, Biden, Schumer, you know, just the the you know, the the, the leaders of of both parties and the president. Um we would never hit the debt ceiling. They're all smart enough to realize just how horrible that would be. Mm-hmm. But whether it's the House or the Senate, you could have individuals who could sour the deal and cause us to hit a debt ceiling because we can't ever get enough votes on anything. Mm-hmm. And those can happen in both parties. I'm not talking about just Republicans. I'm talking about Democrats as well. Right, right. Um, and run us off that cliff. And some of those individuals are probably in, and again, I'm talking both left and right, are probably in congressional districts that running us off a cliff actually may help them get reelected. Yeah. Because their district is so, you know, um, far right conservative or far left Mm -hmm. um, liberal. Yeah. Um, That's what scares me is not that, you know, Kevin and Biden and Schumer, that they can't figure it out. They're all politics. And they get it. Right. None of them think they come out of this looking good if we hit the debt ceiling. It's the people behind them. And remember, Speaker McCarthy um, became Speaker under a scenario where he can almost get recalled in very short notice. Right. You know, yep. it doesn't take too many people yep. to cause another vote, and then maybe he's not Speaker anymore. So mm-hmm. that's the part that scares me. I, I guess, too, ideally, then that that would really, um, you would think, would invoke some sort of. Um, cause for bipartisanship, at least in the House, given that if you at least if you got, say, 20 Democratic members to vote with the Republicans, then now you're safe from your few defectors there. Um, same would have to go in the Senate, given how slim that that majority is, too. Um, it's also a comment on on how well Democrats can keep in lockstep with their administration and how 
well, Republic, <laughs> Republicans can't. We saw that uh, definitely during the Trump administration. Again, you would hope that one of these challenges might create some bipartisan support. We could get rid of some of this stuff. Um, I'm not sure I completely bank on that. I'll be honest with you. Yeah. I, it, while I don't think it's it's the most likely scenario, it wouldn't surprise me at all if we get to a June you know, 4th, 5th, we run out of time and Biden almost has to invoke the 14th Amendment. Mm-hmm. And, and, and because basically what I think he could do then until is invoke it, pay a bunch of bills, um, let the courts try to challenge it. Um, let's say you find a federal judge that says it doesn't read that way. You immediately find an appellate right. court to put a stay on that. And then it goes free. It buys time. Yeah, that I don't think that's probable, but it's damn sure possible. Mm hmm. Yep, I, I, I tend to agree with you, and I'll be interested to see um, who, if anyone, defects and, and what kind of pushback they get from their own party in the future, um, especially as we roll into a presidential election in 2024. Absolutely. Ron, that's about all the time we have for today. Thanks, uh, thanks for putting your economist hat on and helping us out. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. As I mentioned on the Friday Pulse Check last week, we will be starting a new series here on the Flatlining Podcast, focusing on the health care policy of the 2024 presidential candidates. More details on that coming soon. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of Flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies, copyright 2023, all rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe, rate us five stars, and leave us a review. It helps us out here at the program. For Ron Howardin, I'm Matthew Handley. Have a good week.